It seems like we mostly all feel hated. Then we justify fighting back because we're only responding to hate, we think. If we could listen to an idea without the assumption that we are hated, we could hear differently. Ethical questions are even more difficult to wrestle with when you think half of your country will immediately hate you, no matter what your knowledgeable, thoughtful conclusion is. Do you remember around 2015 when there was a dress on the internet and people were arguing about what colors it was? It was maddening when someone saw it differently from us. How could they? We didn't understand. We felt curious. No one changed their mind. But we saw there was a filter we didn't anticipate. It seems like we all have our filters with everything. And our hypocrisies. I know I do. Sometimes the heart and mind don't agree. When I'm talking with someone in particular who isn't my biggest fan, the feeling of hatred buzzing on my skin filters everything they say. I don't hear much except their disapproval. Talking with the same person on a day when I have a deeper capacity for clarity, I hear the why behind the why of what they're saying. I can respond with more neutral precision and sometimes even curiosity. We feel so strongly about important things because we love so deeply, yet when we feel hated, it can bring out our hate. Be careful fighting monsters, lest you become one. I like that quote, but also, it's not always a monster. Sometimes it's a mostly well-intentioned person. You don't know a well-intentioned person with a different opinion. Well, I do. I'm talking about someone I love. But the road to hell is paved with good intentions, you might say. Yes, but if we are all hating and feeling hated all the time, we're already halfway there. Feeling hated is filtering what we hear. It would be helpful to try to keep criticizing ideas without being hateful and let our ideas be criticized without feeling hated. Easier said than done, sure. We can start by imagining someone we love, respect, and feel is a good person having a one-off opinion that feels deeply hateful or unethical. Coming from that place, we can be more curious. You won't change what color dress the person sees, but you will hear them. It seems like those who are pro-choice 
feel nothing but hatred coming from those who are more pro-life, and in turn feel nothing but hatred back at them. It seems like they don't see how anyone could see the dress as different colors than the colors they see, unless the person looking at the dress has terrible intentions. How could someone be pro-life with surrounding thoughts other than that of controlling women? It seems like there aren't always surrounding thoughts. Sometimes people are simply naming the colors they see. And what some see is that the right thing to do is not purposely abort a fetus. And what others see is that women should decide that and no one else. And the truth I see is that both ways of seeing can be coming from the best of intentions. So far... Not only am I open to arguments and examples on either side of the abortion debate, but I empathize with them. I thought having a baby would help me to be firmly planted on either side of the abortion argument, but it has not. I'm uncomfortable with every conclusion I've made or heard so far. On Instagram, I've seen Jason Selvig ask pro-lifers what they would say to a pregnant woman considering abortion. Their answers were about how it's not about choice for yourself because there is another life you need to consider. He then asked them how they felt about vax mandates and their answers were about how a person a person should be free to choose the implication unmentioned was the supposed hypocrisy of the right i've also heard of someone on the right questioning pro-choicers on their opinion on abortion They said, my body, my choice, but wouldn't respond to subsequent questions about vax mandates. And this is considered a hypocrisy of the left by the right. I'm currently anti-mandate and moderately pro-choice. I don't really think of the left or the right as hypocrites here. I more think it's interesting that they're all on the flip side of the same coin, calling each other the same thing. Hmm, well, that's different. The left might respond to the suggestion that the idea of being pro-choice should also apply to vaccines. It is different. It's about getting vaccinated to try to do the right thing, not spread sickness to others. But... I wonder, how much should we force people to do what we think is the right thing? For me, being ethical seems to be more about stopping wrongdoing 
rather than forcing right doing. What is the difference? I would say it means having a wider measurement for what is considered good enough. Neglect is as bad as abuse. Some might respond in disagreement. And to the right, forcing vaccines feels like abuse. To the left, to not force vaccines feels like neglect. It seems like the left has a wide range for what they consider to be neglect. I seem to be more on the right in this sense, in that I am naturally more concerned with limiting unnecessary so-called abuse at the cost of possible neglect. For example, the idea of innocent until proven guilty allows for neglecting to imprison some criminals, but prioritizes not wrongly imprisoning innocent people. And so far, I think that's the right move. Hmm, well, that's different. The right might say to the idea that being anti-mandate should also apply to the idea of abortion, or put another way, that the idea of being pro-life should also apply to vaccines. The idea that it's not just about you and your choice. I want to ask pro-lifers and myself if we are responsible to the life within us how do we compare that with our responsibility to the lives around us? I want to do right by people treat people well and do what I can to be of help but what obligations do each of us have? The first thing that comes to mind is first do no harm, which I'm under the impression is the first rule of being a doctor. Past that, I have to admit, I've not spent much conscious time on this question. Maybe I could first ask, how do I see others' obligations toward me beyond what the law has already decided? I would say being respectful, empathetic, not directing, pitching in, doing what I would hope someone else would do to help if I was in need. Is that enough? I was listening to Dennis Prager's podcast with Julie Hartford as they were discussing abortion. They mentioned something about how we should look to improve situations that can lead to unwanted pregnancies, such as poverty, lack of education, uninvolved fathers. Other than the movie Dirty Dancing, probably my first two examples of abortion in the media I was exposed to were in a show called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend 
and Caitlin Moran's book. To my memory, in both examples, contraception was used, the pregnant woman wasn't young or single, both examples of abortion, the pregnant woman was a married mother, not struggling with poverty or not having a partner, but past the point of wanting another pregnancy, another birth, another all-consuming baby to care for. Still, in both examples, I felt a ping of sadness at the abortion. There was part of me that wanted the mother to struggle deeply with an unwanted pregnancy, but in the end, to decide not to abort the fetus. But that's not what happened. But I empathize with each in their decision. Pro-lifers may respond that ultimately in these examples the pregnancies could have been prevented, but I don't find much help in my ethical thinking there because it doesn't change that not all pregnancies can be prevented. In beginning to read an Opposing Views book on ethics, I recently came across an article by Helen Riddlemeyer called Moral Relativism, R.I.P. She said, quote, The most annoyingly ubiquitous genre in journalism is the social scientific analysis as if a person can't speak with authority without citing economics or sociology, end quote. She also said, quote, Under the new cultural rules, moral condemnation is a legitimate thing to express, but only if you can demonstrate that the sin you want to condemn makes someone twice as likely to take antidepressants or 40% less likely to be promoted at work, end quote. She went on to discuss an example of an article she read about obesity being correlated with a few specific negative things. She then said, quote, This sort of argument tries to have it both ways, to have all the benefits of authority without the burden of being answerable to people who disagree. On one hand, the author isn't saying obesity is bad. Science is. It's, which makes it a fact, not an opinion. In other words, my moral claim is objectively correct. But that doesn't mean it has to be true in your case. The same maneuver can be seen in the argument that there's nothing wrong with pornography because its prevalence isn't correlated with higher crime rates. The idea that something might be spiritually harmful or beneficial in a way that can't be demonstrated statistically has been written out of the conversation. Mm. 
end quote. I think I often fit the description of her criticism. I don't want to be wrong. I usually think of not wanting to be wrong as a good thing, and that I want to do my due diligence, be educated about actual outcomes of what I think may be good or bad. But after reading Riddlemeyer, I can see that kind of trying to be objectively correct as being a little too delicate, maybe annoying. I've heard Tim Poole recently discuss people who he called ethically fragile, and I wonder if it may be a fair criticism of me. On one hand, I don't seem to have the flat, common-sense ethics that both the right and the left seem to have. Even though I haven't spent enough conscious time considering ethics as I should have, I somehow also tend to superficially overthink these questions when they come up, and it's like how a word can lose meaning if it's repeated a lot. The sound and taste of the word become numbing. I was discussing abortion recently with a pro-lifer who feels that those who are pro-choice up to the point of birth are, quote, disconnected. He just cannot fathom how one can be mostly in agreement with our culture's typical ethics and also be involved with abortions that occur after the baby's no longer in the womb, rare as they are in the States. I feel a bit disconnected myself. Why? It's like I don't want to be mean, but... It can't be that pure, of course. I'm no saint. It seems like a lot of life feels surreal for me. There's a weird paradox of wanting to question things and argue ideas, but wanting everyone to be nice to each other. When I even hear someone say, I disagree, to someone else, it feels a little harsh to me. Couldn't they find a different way to say their opinion without saying, I disagree? Is this immature of me? When my child is doing something wrong, I have no problem being the bad guy. When something small bothers me, I have strong opinions. Yet, between two decent, typical adults, it is hard for me take a general stand on deep issues like abortion. Would it mean my stating that in those two examples of abortion, I should say that they should not have had abortions? Because there was part of me that wished the story had turned out differently? It doesn't feel precisely true for me to say that. In listening to a disagreement about late-term abortions on TimCast, there was a question about why abort the fetus if you can remove it without killing it, or try to, and then give it up for adoption. 
It would be a similar experience and end result for the mother. And the pro-choicer said that it should be the mother's choice. And I think this idea of it being the mother's choice in this case is something like this. The life of the baby hasn't really started yet. And the mother should be able to decide if she wants to bring this baby into life. To bring this life into the world. And that because this life hasn't really started yet, the mother should decide that. I actually kind of get that. But why? Am I just disconnected? Ethically fragile? If push came to shove, if I was in that room, it would feel wrong to not care for that baby. And I can see myself saying so or trying to care for the baby. When Tim Pool was arguing that, hey, you could just do a similar thing and instead not let the baby die at birth, why not? And then I thought, yes, I think that is right. But at first blush, I don't have that flat, ethical, common sense intuition that pro-lifers have. I have to think about it more to get there. Is this ethical fragility? I empathize more with abortions that are considered less elective such as the example in Ireland about a woman who was in the process of a miscarriage but couldn't legally obtain an abortion because Edith still had a heartbeat. In that example, sadly, not only did the fetus die, but the mother did as well. And it's been said that an abortion during her miscarriage likely would have saved her life. It still is hard for me to say that yes, if I was in that room during miscarriage and asked to vote on the situation, I would vote that yes, she should have an abortion if she wants. There, I said it. Why is that so hard? Why is that so hard for me to say when I know that the fetus was dying anyway? Because it's sad, profoundly sad. Does this make me ethically fragile? I want to be strong. I am strong in some ways, and I've birthed two babies. I think there's part of me that feels the sadness of life so deeply that it's just so hard to even deal with, to confront, acknowledge. Maybe that's the surrealism I feel. It's so much that it's numbing. 
It's like there's a giving up when you acknowledge this sadness that I don't want to give in to. It's as though I want this PG movie plot where there's a choice in every situation that will trump the sadness of reality. But being on either side of the abortion debate seems wrong. What does it mean for something to be spiritually harmful or beneficial in a way that can't be demonstrated statistically? If something affects people spiritually, why can't it be explained? Helen Riddlemeyer's mention of the argument that there's nothing wrong with pornography because its prevalence isn't correlated with higher crime rates makes sense to me. I've come across pornographic material while scrolling Tumblr in my younger years. And I've seen some R-rated, very R-rated, shows and movies, but I've never watched hardcore porn. I have no interest in it, and I don't think it's a good idea to watch it. Why? I don't have a satisfying answer. It just seems like it's not the best idea. I'm not interested in the debate enough to take the argument further than that, or spend time trying to convince anyone. You do you. Is that enough for an ethical opinion? Or should I have evidence before saying it doesn't seem like the best idea? I was listening to a conversation between Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson about Rubin and his husband wanting to have biological children rather than adopt. And they were, to my understanding and memory, saying that basically it should go without saying why someone would want to have a biological child rather than adopt. I think we could try to put words to it, such as saying, well, because that's the natural order of things. Not a satisfying answer, but it's the best I can do without spending a lot of time on it. And even maybe if I did spend a lot of time on it, I wouldn't have a better answer. A lot of us want so badly to be evidence-based people. And that can be at odds with my feelings. Seems like there is a time for evidence when our feelings filter our reality into distortion. Should we always have reason and evidence for ethical decisions? Or can it be enough to say that something feels right or wrong? Recently, I've heard Dennis Prager say, without God as the source of morality, morality is just an opinion. He has said something like, 
people who don't seem to have the mental capacity for this are those who went to university. I'd been thinking about the idea of mental capacity recently because I've been trying to read the book Democracy in Deficit about the legacy of Keynesian economics. There's part of me that thinks this book's very difficult for me. Maybe I just don't have the mental capacity for it. Maybe I'm not smart enough for it. Maybe I should just cut my losses. And there's another part of me which says, no, don't give up, try harder. I think the decision I've come to is to read some more of basic economics first and then return to democracy and deficit. If I try to put myself back in my 16 or 17 year old self before university and think about what Dennis Prager said, I think my young self would hear what he said as saying something like, we need something deeper than ourselves to look to. That feels true. But so what? What does that even mean? My present self could pick it apart. Overthink it to death. I don't have a good definition for what we mean by the word God. The best definition of God I've come to is something from nothing. So... Is Prager right about university? Well, I have to put myself in a simple, not overthinking state of mind to try to get his idea so it seems like he is right. Maybe university brings out critical thinking at the cost of different kind of understanding. Seems like we need both our logical reasoning mind as well as our intuitive mind to work together. At the moment, our intuition and reason, which I can crudely project as the political right and left, are just arguing with each other. I called this podcast Arguing With Myself, but I wish I would thought of a better name. I don't want the world to be arguing. There's a room for a respectful discussion instead when those involved don't feel respect for each other. When it comes to abortion, even if you believe that a fetus is not a human and has no discomfort, during an abortion. There is still part of me that holds this idea that if you hadn't forcefully done that, this fetus would have become a person. And it seems worse the closer you get to birth. But the point at which it's more okay or less terrible seems arbitrary. Some pro-choicers seem to think that this is a view that requires pro-lifers to be against contraception to be consistent 
yet most pro-lifers aren't. I don't think being pro-life logically requires being against contraception because contraception is a passive preventing of life beginning rather than an active ending. Is that arbitrary though? Are all ethics? If you are staunchly pro-life, how do you justify abortion due to rape? All things said in favor of being pro-life take the conversation down the path toward asking, why should we punish the fetus for being the result of rape? Surely there are people living today who are the result of rape. If abortion is so bad as pro-lifers believe, should a raped pregnant woman or girl birth the baby? Pro-lifers who support choice after rape seems to seem to be making a lesser of two evils decision. What do I think? What if I was in the room with a 13-year-old girl, raped and pregnant? I have to pause in silence. It is an obvious answer to the left. Of course, she should have an abortion. Very little seems obvious to me. I think the tragic answer is yes. I would support the abortion, assuming the girl would prefer that. If she preferred to birth the baby, then she should that should be her choice. But if I think that that fetus should be allowed to be aborted, is that the same as saying I think that person, potential person, unique character should not exist? No. No, I'm still deeply saddened by the aborting of it. by the forcefully ending of its potential life in this world, but I don't want to force the girl or woman to be pregnant and birth this baby if she doesn't want to. Feels like a decision of a lesser of two evils. The pro-choice part of me asks, if that is my conclusion, why does there have to be a rape involved? me to think that maybe the pregnant person should get an abortion if she wants to. It seems like what I am unreasonably wanting, if I can find words for it, is for women to want their pregnancies unless there is an extreme reason not to. I know that is unreasonable to ask of women and yet 
that is still what part of me feels. I was listening to the Dark Horse and they mentioned something about visiting some place where there is a plant that women eat when they wish to end a pregnancy. And that this knowledge has been handed down over generations. It seems reasonable, especially before modern contraception, that in early pregnancy a woman may feel she doesn't want to continue with this pregnancy for any number of reasons. I try to put myself in that situation, around five weeks pregnant, not wanting to be... And I can see myself potentially choosing to eat that plant. Why doesn't this make me as sad as modern elective abortion? Seems like it should, since if not for eating that plant, that fetus would potentially become a person. I think it's in part because it's so very early in the pregnancy that it feels like less of a loss. I think it's also in part because it is natural, so to speak. It's eating a plant that is known to be followed by miscarriage. But should that difference affect the way it's viewed ethically? Is this a form of the naturalistic fallacy? It doesn't necessarily seem reasonable to see it differently than a modern abortion, but I can't seem to change my feeling that it is different. Is it just part of maturity? To be able to not only make lesser of two evils kind of decisions, but to accept them. There are no solutions, only trade-offs, says Thomas Sowell. That quote helps me when I'm overthinking, anxious, or feeling decision fatigue. But deeply, my idealist self doesn't want to give in to a trade-off rather than a solution. I voted for Jorgensen in the last election. Was this immature, complacent idealism? Voting for someone who wouldn't get elected? Is it a cop-out from making a lesser of two evils decision, a hard decision for the greater good, or against the greater bad. I've heard Jordan Peterson say something like, you can't really solve the tragedy of life. To my memory, he was speaking to those like me who seem to want life to be this kind of feel-good movie plot where everyone is somehow equally great and is equally fortunate because we can fully affect fortune. We can solve it. To my memory, he was talking to people who seemed to, 
define any misfortune as the result of society's neglect to be remedied by a social program. Even though I think he's right, I still struggle to accept the idea that sometimes the best humanity can ethically do is make lesser of two evils decisions. Even worse is when we don't see what we're doing as potentially the lesser of two evils and think that those who've come to a different decision have only evil intentions. There are, of course, people in the world who intend to cause harm, but many instead think that their decision isn't really bad, especially compared to the alternatives. They see the colors of the dress differently. Imagine a baby boomer or a silent generation gay man who has felt like an outsider forever, has never felt a sense of belonging or appreciation outside of his friends and partner. Imagine a story about a person like that. He's outgoing and social. Within his own circles. And at every party he's been to this year. Drinking cocktails in the late evenings. Pride Month has started to come up in conversation. One comment leading to another about celebrating. From one conversational stepping stone to another, he and his friends laugh their way to this idea of proudly parading and twerking in tidy whities at the local pride parade. It seemed like such a good, fun idea, but Outside the context of his world, the fun idea didn't necessarily come off the way it seemed like it would. It read as trying to force his way of being onto others, very similar to the pressure to conform he has always felt from society. When we feel hated, we tend to overcompensate in our response. Communication starts to dissolve, and we need to be able to talk to those outside of our little worlds so that we can hear when what we are doing has stopped making sense or lacks context, when our joke is actually an inside joke. This can be very hard to do, of course. I can't explain to someone who doesn't like my favorite songs why those songs are good. I could explain how a song requires a lot of skill, but that doesn't make the song more moving, inspiring, or enjoyable. I can't quite explain my way to why some things are good. 
been trying to learn more about abortion. I was recently watching a YouTube video called What It's Like to Have a Second Trimester Abortion. It was a group of women who had various reasons for terminating their pregnancies. And it was tearful for me to hear their stories. They seem really brave for sharing what they've been through. And I wish them peace. An interesting part of that video was when one couple said, I feel like we still breathe every day. I don't think it will ever go away. It's losing a child. Similar to grieving a loss. Is it possible to grieve a decision and still hold that it was the right decision? Those mothers, I think, would say yes. The statement that it is losing a child goes against the recent pro-choice photo of a woman holding up a sign saying, Not yet a human, with an arrow pointing down toward her third trimester belly. When does it become a human? Any answer I can think of seems arbitrary, other than shortly after conception. Yet, that doesn't change my mind about being moderately pro-choice. Another interesting part of the what it's like to have a second trimester abortion video was when one person mentioned, quote, lies out there about babies being born with these fatal diagnoses and then being executed by a nurse or a doctor afterward. And that's not what that is. It's hospice, just like you would put your dying relative in if they had cancer, end quote. Until hearing that, the only thing I had heard about abortion after birth was the Virginia governor who said, quote, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant will be delivered. The infant will be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physician and the mother, end quote. When I was talking with a pro-lifer recently, that that was the disconnect he was referring to. How could you have a baby, no longer a fetus, and decide that it's okay to not care for? But after that YouTube video, I began to wonder if there was something I was misunderstanding. So I began reading more about it. From what I understand, the decision the Virginia governor is implying in that quote is whether the mother wants to try to take care of the baby or make him as comfortable as possible and let him die. Pro-lifers call this killing the baby. Pro-choicers call this hospice care.
This can also refer to situations like when a baby is born very prematurely, say 20 weeks. It would have taken a lot of intervention to try to keep this baby alive, and even then they would likely die, so the parents decide to keep them as comfortable as possible and let them die. Like when someone has a terminal disease on hospice care. When I put it that way, the Virginia governor's comments don't sound bad. It sounds like a terrible thing to go through for the baby, the parents, the medical workers. But it doesn't sound like it has terrible intentions. It sounds like a hard judgment call, though and difficult to legislate ethically, but to legislate around. But what about in cases when there is a late-term abortion and the baby ends up surviving and could potentially live? Should a mother be legally allowed to decide to let the baby die? No, I, I don't think so. I think that seems different. I think in that case, letting the baby die would be neglect. That would be terrible for the mother who came there for an abortion and is now being asked by me to care for this baby. The mother, the nurses... I think she should be made aware of this possibility beforehand. And the abortion should be done during the first term, of course, although I understand that isn't always possible. What I keep hearing is that a late-term abortion wouldn't happen unless there is a grave medical issue with the baby, but... My understanding is that actually there are some people who survive abortion and go on to live typical lives. I just found a different clip of the Virginia governor's quote, which also included at the beginning that late-term abortions occur when there is a serious medical condition. But I've seen interviews with abortion survivors who are leading typical lives. I think it comes down to how likely the baby is to survive and whether it feels like the right thing to do to intervene extensively or to provide so-called hospice. I think in most cases, you should try to save them. On the Best of the Left podcast, there was recently some discussion about slave women who chose to abort their babies so as not to send their beloved baby into a life of slavery. The phrase, abortion is love, seems to be referring to situations like that. I empathize with women making that choice out of love and out of rebellion 
towards the horrible, unethical system they were forced to live in. I wonder, do those women, did those women think that they should have been aborted rather than born into slavery? I seem to have this idea that we will feel acceptance with a decision when it is the right thing to do, but maybe that's just not true. I can't seem to get to a general logical conclusion around what is ethically right and what should be law with abortion. Every pregnancy seems to need its own analysis. Trying to take my thoughts to the next logical conclusion leads to contradiction. All I have is what feels right. It isn't just about relieving suffering. It isn't just about whether the fetus involved is conscious or aware. We can think of situations to justify killing an adult for the greater good without them having much suffering, and I still don't think it's the right thing to do. I don't support capital punishment. I believe the point of justice isn't to punish, but to keep the convicted from harming others. So, still I wonder, what makes something feel right? I think Dennis Prager would say something about whether God says it's right. I don't really know how to get that, at least not yet. What feels right seems to be something within us that just is how it is, like what colors that dress appeared to be, or whether you think cilantro tastes like soap, or whether something feels like freedom or neglect. It seems like we rightly look to evidence rather than opinion for answers to knowledge. When it comes to ethics, though, if we keep questioning why something is good, at some point it becomes an infinite regression. I'm not sure how many times we have to ask why, but at some point the answer is because someone thought it is good. want to hear expert opinions, but I'm not sure anyone can be an expert at ethics. This is, I think, where Dennis Prager would say, yes, that's the point of saying that without God, morality is only opinion. That's why we need God's opinion to settle matters. I, I wonder how different people hear and define God differently. Life, for me, seems to feel like one of those double images where you can see two things, like the picture that is both a candlestick and two people kissing, and I can switch back and forth from seeing one image to another. But it feels like others can't or don't do that. Others are certain of reality. It is a candlestick. And I agree that it's a candlestick, but I also see it differently. I think some Christians or Jews might say 
That is why we need God to give us grace. Because what we do will never be enough or fully good. It is only the best we can do. I've heard this before, but don't really know what to do with it. I don't know if I have the mental capacity for that, at least not yet. The best we can do has to be better than this either-or reality. Has to be better than the two people I saw in the street in D.C. yelling their opposing political mottos at each other's faces. I have heard pro-lifers say something like, Actually, this overturning of Roe allows for more freedom because every state now has the freedom to decide. They don't understand that to pro-choicers and me, this sounds as ridiculous as it would be to say. Actually, the overturning of the First Amendment allows for more freedom because now each state has the choice to decide if the people who live there should have the right to free speech. What are the limits of my call to speak without hate? To try to listen without the assumption of hate? How can we exist together when we see reality so differently? Is compromise the answer? How do we do that? Even if the United States dissolved into leftist states being one country and rightist states being another country, would we be happy? Pro-choicers don't seem happy with any state being pro-life and vice versa. But the alternative to compromise, as I see, is constant war of some kind. How far should we go to try to force others to do the right thing? How much should we limit being with those we find unethical? My answers to that begin quantitatively, measuring this much good versus that much cost and lives lost in war for the greater good type of thoughts. I think of Helen Riddlemeyer and wonder if this is a time for spiritual knowing rather than statistics. But what does my spirit know? Grace towards myself in not knowing? That doesn't get the job done. That doesn't get the hard decisions made. That doesn't make me ethically strong as I want to be. Maybe humanity is still living in the first rule of first do no harm. Maybe I'm not able to move past that yet, but it doesn't matter if you're not ready because decisions still have to be made. You may never feel like you have enough evidence to make an informed decision, and it seems like you could make the argument that doing no harm, doing nothing is neglect. It's, it's not neglect if you, if you think that whatever you do is likely to be abuse of some kind, but it seems choosing to do nothing is still doing something, to misquote Rush. 
there is still a decision there, even if you make no decision. As arbitrary as my feelings are, if I push myself into a decision, what feels right, or maybe only less terrible to me so far is, first, of course, help prevent unwanted pregnancies. Not going into that here. Second, after the first trimester, I don't think it's best to have abortions unless there's a grave medical reason like the women in the video called what it's like to have a second trimester abortion. Third, if someone survives an abortion, most of the time the baby should be attempted to be saved. I don't think a mother making a different decision than what I think is right here would be at risk of harming others. So it doesn't feel best to enforce this ethically with prison. I think this is why some argue that the point of justice is also about making an example. But I don't know about sending people to prison over this difficult judgment call on whether to take a gravely struggling baby from the mother to attempt to save them or let the mother hold them in their last living moments. It seems it would be better to learn more about what that situation looks like medically, to have that opinion on the law. But for now, the lesser of two evils seems to be to question to express what we think is right and to listen. I see this as a lesser of two evils decision and a compromise. Most pro-lifers accept abortion clinics as a lesser of two evils compared with violence toward abortion clinics. Is there something better than compromise? Am I wrong about all of this? I want to be open to the idea that I could be we help others stay open to change by speaking with respect and speaking as though we are open to change even when we don't think we are. The first time I saw the internet dress, I was like everyone, wondering how people were seeing different colors than me, but I have to confess, the next time it popped up in the media, it looked like different colors than the first time I saw it. I don't remember the colors now, 
but it felt crazy. It was like one of those double images, except that once I saw the second thing, I couldn't go back to seeing the first. I don't know if this happened to anyone else. I don't remember the reasons given for why people saw different colors. But I remember for myself that it is possible to change when we don't feel hated.